Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are continuing our series on the Gospel of John with a discussion of Jesus walking on the water in John chapter 6. Along the way, they'll also discuss boat stories in the Old and New Testaments and a theology of water, and they'll talk about what makes this a sign when John doesn't describe it as such. Before we get to the episode, we want to give a big thank you to those of you who have signed up to be a Theopolis partner. For a $50 a month or a $500 a year donation to Theopolis, you become a Theopolis partner where you get weekly emails from Peter Lightheart on his work, you get access to audio recordings of our courses, and other insights into our work here at Theopolis. Several of you podcast listeners have signed up recently, and we just want to thank you for it. And if you, listener, would like to become a Theopolis partner, there's a link down there in the show notes for you with more information. With that, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing Jesus walking on the water in John chapter 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Uh, and we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. We've been looking at the so-called Book of Signs, which covers the first half of the Gospel of John, the various events, miracles that Jesus performs that have historically been identified as a series of signs. There are seven of them within the Gospel, culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11, could say that uh, there's a further sign at the end of the gospel of Jesus' own resurrection that breaks out of the old creation and enters into a new creation. Today we're looking at another section of chapter 6. We've looked at the first part of chapter 6, which was a, the uh, event of the feeding of the 5,000 passage, as Alistair pointed out in our last episode, which is recorded in all four of the gospels. And John places it at the time of a Passover. Jesus is offering uh, a new Passover to his people, to a new Israel in the wilderness. But that Passover event, uh, that feeding in the wilderness, is followed by a water crossing. And so the John chapter 6 is uh, consists of a couple of signs, and then uh, that's followed by a lengthy debate about Jesus as the bread of life and Jesus as the manna that comes out of heaven. But these two signs obviously fit together. You have not just a not just one-off signs, but you have a sequence of signs, at least in this chapter where Jesus is moving through the history of Israel, as we find in some of the other Gospels, feeding his people uh, as the good shepherd, as the king, then crossing over the water, taking his disciples safely to the other side. And then he gets into a, a debate about manna in the wilderness. So you have the movement from Passover through the water uh, to the wilderness as a topic of debate. That's the sequence that we're looking at in chapter 6. And there are a number of things that are going on, I think, here in this, other than the Exodus typology we, we find in the sequence. There are a number of things that are overlapping in the scene of Jesus' water crossing. This is the famous scene of Jesus walking on the water. The disciples are in a boat. They're being tossed around by a strong wind. There's a storm at the sea, and Jesus comes walking on the sea and comes near to the boat. And that's an Exodus scene, but it's also an, uh, a uh, signal of Jesus' power over the seas, which is an, a regular 
uh, theme of the prophets, regular theme of, uh, we find it in the book of Job. We find it all the way back at the creation account where God is uh, moving water around. Creation is a hydraulic operation, among other things. He's able to move water up and put a firmament between waters above and below. He's able to move water from side to side and cause dry land to appear. And Yahweh's lordship over the sea is a signal of his divine mastery of the world. The sea is untamable. The sea is constantly in motion. But uh, the Lord can calm the sea, and the Lord can master the waves. And Jesus proves himself to be the master of the waves by walking all along the sea as if it were dry land, and then calming the sea once he's uh, in the boat with the disciples. The sea has a greater prominence within the New Testament than it does within the Old. If we look through the Gospels, particularly in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, the Sea of Galilee is always referred to as a sea, though it's not a particularly large lake by the standards of, for instance, the lakes you might find in the US. It is a fairly small um, inland lake, and there are a number of occasions where it is presented as a focus of all that Jesus is doing, his ministry. If you look through the Gospels, the earlier part of Jesus' ministry centers upon this body of water, um, the surroundings of it. And the way that Jesus relates to the Sea of Galilee seems to have symbolic importance. First of all, the disciples come from the Sea of Galilee. They are Galileans, but they are also people who work upon the sea. They are, for the most part, the key disciples are fishermen. And their work as fishermen is connected to their later work as those who will go out to the wider world and become fishers of men. Jesus' mastery over that realm is then presented as something connected with the larger mastery that will be manifest within the mission of the early church. I think we can see that again in chapter 21 of John, where there's a lot of Symbolism associated with the catch of the fish that draws our minds back maybe to Ezekiel chapter 47, to the preparation of a meal of fish on the shore, and Jesus preparing Peter, particularly as he pulls in the, um, as he jumps out of the boat, and then as he pulls in the net full of fish, and then as he's restored in his ministry as a shepherd, but also as a fisherman. And in this passage, there is a call back to the story of the Exodus, to the God who walks upon the waters and tames the seas. But there's also a look forward to the God who will tame the seas of the Gentiles. The one occasion where we do have a big story of the sea within the Old Testament is the story of Jonah. And it's not accidental that that is a story of a prophet being sent to a Gentile people. And God's power over the seas is seen there in um, I think a symbol in part of the fact that when Israel is thrown into exile, God can prepare the big fish of the nation of Assyria to swallow them up and then to restore them as they repent. So within this passage, I think um, there are a lot of dimensions of symbolism that we can see. And even beyond that, as we compare this with other gospel accounts, particularly the account in Mark, and we'll see that different things are brought to the foreground. Mark's account particularly reminds me of resurrection themes. Jesus coming, um, walking on the water in the night. They think it's a ghost. Um, the break of day coming into the boat, overcoming the chaos of the waves and the wind and rising up into the boat. And here I think there are some of those elements 
slightly less pronounced. Yeah, the, 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 as you said, it's the Sea and it's the Sea of Galilee. Both of those are associated with Gentiles. So the, the Sea is an uh, Old Testament symbol of the, the raging and constantly moving world of Gentile powers. Galilee is Galilee of the Gentiles. So that combination is puts us in that setting. We also, and just a, the fact that this is kind of a, a, an object lesson for the disciples, they're going to set out as fishers of men once Jesus departs, and they're going to go out into the uh, raging sea of the world, seeking to fish for men, seeking to carry out the mission of Jesus. Apparently, Jesus is not going to be there, uh, and they're going to be tossed around and then uh, wait for Jesus to appear. And as soon as Jesus appears in this story, he brings them to land. It's as if Jesus himself is kind of the, the shore to which they're going. As long as Jesus is there, then they're safe. Uh, and as long as Jesus is there, then they're then they're in harbor, they're in, they're in haven. So there's a like the other signs, this is a sign not just of Jesus' power over the waves or Jesus as the Lord who moves, who leads his people through an exodus. Well, this is a sign that points ahead to what the disciples are going to experience. We're going to see this uh, even more prominently, I think, in uh, chapter 9, with the man born blind. And we have, the, we have a, 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 an object lesson for the meditation of the disciples. Uh, when Jesus is apart from them, as he will be, he warns them of that in the upper room discourse. When he leaves them, then this is the situation they'll find themselves in, and they should look for Jesus to be with them and to approach them and to join them in the boat and to calm the waves and to bring them to the shore. All those things are uh, assurance to them that they'll be able to carry out their mission. might be worth reflecting upon the boat as a symbol of the church. It is a particularly apt symbol as part of the land that's taken out to the sea. Um, there's dry land surrounded by the terror and the chaos of the sea, but you're safe within. And I think we see that particularly in the story in Acts 27, where um, Paul undergoes a similar experience to Jonah, where there's this threat of um, shipwreck, where he's on the boat and all these forces are around. And the pagan sailors in that case um, are told to remain on the boat with him, not to go off because they'll be saved as they stick with him as a sort of inverse of the story of Jonah. And the church, in many respects, is that boat. It's a part of the land that's been put out to sea. Christ is the one who controls even the chaos of the waves. We tend to depend upon God's power over the familiar things of our lives. And the, uh, we believe that God controls the regular affairs where Things are all in order and God just keeps things ticking over. But in books like Jonah and elsewhere, we see that God is the one who controls even the chaotic forces of nature. He can master those things which no human being can put any, can master or tame or put in their bounds. God has placed the bounds on the sea and he can walk upon its waves. Yeah, that, the, the association of the church with, with boats and sailing vessels is a, is a regular theme of traditional exegesis, Noah's, Noah's Ark is an image of the saved world in the midst of the storm and the rain. Those who are within the boat are baptized into safety, baptized into salvation, as Peter says. Now, you, have, you mentioned Jonah, and you have Jonah's, the ship that Jonah's on kind of turns into a, a temple. They all start worshiping, and first of all, they're worshiping all the other gods, and then once the seas calm after Jonah's thrown in, then they begin worshiping and sacrificing to Yahweh. So, so you have the, the 
the pieces of land, but uh, the, the Noah's Ark is already a kind of proto-sanctuary with its three decks and its uh, structure that uh, resembles, it's measured like other holy spaces in the Bible. Uh, and it resembles the temple, and you have these a picture almost of a sailing, a floating sanctuary that uh, the various boats of the Bible function that way. We landlubbers, I, I, I don't go to sea. Uh, that's not where I live. I think we, we, lose, we lose sight of how isolated you are in the midst of the ocean. As you say, the Sea of Galilee is not big. But still, if you get out in the middle of it and there's a storm, get in, in, out in the middle of a body of water in which there's no land to be seen. If you're on the ocean, then you know, you're maybe days away from land. And even today, I mean, there's several recent books. I, I don't remember the author of it, but there's a recent, uh, fairly recent book called The Outlaw Sea. It started as an Atlantic article. And uh, the author was talking about uh, not just not just the physical challenges of sailing, but the the various uh, unknown battles and piracy and thieving and duplicity that goes on in international shipping. And he wasn't talking about the ancient world. He was talking about today's world, where the sea is still very much a uh, so untamed world, uh, an ungoverned world. Not just naturally, uh, it is a naturally ungoverned world. We can't control the can't control the waves or the tides or the storms. Um, we, we haven't explored uh, vast reaches of the oceans. But even as a, as a society, as a social reality, as a political reality, it's very much an untamed world. Um, so it, it serves as a fitting, fitting image in the Bible for the world of the Gentiles, which uh, this overlapping sense of danger and uh, threat, the natural threats of the sea, and then all the, all the uh, human threats that go along with that. Israel's life is defined by a series of water crossings, but those tend to be crossings of rivers. And as they look back on their history, the water boundaries of the land that they're in um, provide them with a sense of their spiritual identity. It's the definition of worshipping other gods on the other side of the river Euphrates, the crossing of um, the ford of the Jabbok, where they first received their name, um, the crossing of the Red Sea to... Um, get out of Egypt, the crossing of the Jordan to enter into the promised land. And in each of these cases, there's a formative event, a sort of existential, an event of existential significance in the life of Israel that happens at that water crossing. Now, Israel is defined by water crossings, but the church is also defined by water crossings. Christ is the one who has torn open the abyss of Hades, so that we might walk through on dry land after him. And the stories that we have of water crossings in the New Testament are not crossings of rivers. Um, They're crossings of seas, for the most part, that Christ has not just tamed um, a path through the river, but he's the one who's enabled us to pass through the seas of the Gentiles and has overcome the great barrier, the great untamed realm that surrounds the land, that threatens it. Mm. And as he walks upon it, so we are called to move out upon it, whether in boats. I think we can see in the story of Mark, Peter is called out upon the waters and he um, goes out to Christ. And that's, again, I think maybe something anticipating Peter's own ministry, or Matthew is it, Peter's own ministry as he goes out to the Gentiles first following Christ's call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have uh, different different forms of water, different uh, 
different forms of water uh, that are associated with, uh, have different symbolic associations in the Bible. So, the third day of creation, God separates the land and the sea, separates the waters below so that there's dry land appears, and then there's the sea, and he calls the gathering of the waters into one place he calls sea. But there's still water in the land, and the land is only fruitful and is produces a livelihood for animals and human beings if there is water on the land. And uh, it's interesting in the Revelation, when, when you have judgments on the sea, they're associated with the second day. When you have judgments on the waters, the rivers, they're associated with the third day, or the third trumpet, or the third seal. Those are all, is the third trumpet and the third, uh, the third bowl are judgments on the rivers, because the rivers are associated with the land. They're part of the land system, rather than part of the sea system. Even though they're both water, there's, there's this distinction made between the dangerous water of the sea, which is associated with the Gentiles, and the, uh, the uh, life-giving water of rivers and streams that, uh, that feed the land and make the land fruitful. You have that, those brought together, in a sense, as you were talking about in the symbolism of baptism, which is both uh, a kind of passage through the dangerous waters of death, uh, but also a, a watering were made of earth, and the Lord waters us so that we can become fruitful. So baptism has that double dimension to it, a death and rebirth that are both come through water. In Mark's account in particular of this event, there is a strong connection drawn with the previous events of the, um, of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, sequentially they are connected, but Mark suggests a stronger connection when he writes... Um, then he went up with them into the boat, and the wind ceased. They were completely astonished, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Any thoughts on that? I'm not sure what to make of it. What in particular is the... Um, why is it that the connection with their being astonished, because they did not understand about the loaves, yeah. how does that connect yeah, right, with the story right, right, right. of the... Right. Walking on the sea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we leave yeah, an exercise so, for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the lows in Mark are a, a puzzle at a, at a number of different, a number of different levels. The, you know, in, uh, were you around Mark 8, roughly? Uh, you have kind of this... Uh, Mark 6. Okay. Um, uh, right. Well, yeah, well, you have this, you have this, you have the feeding of the 5,000, you have the feeding of the 4,000, and the, Jesus rebukes the disciples for not understanding the numerology. I think we talked briefly about that a few weeks back. Um, but those loaves in Mark are very puzzling to me. I mean, the, the, obvious, the obvious and simplistic thing would be to say that uh, Jesus, has, Jesus has displayed power to multiply the loaves and to care for his disciples so they shouldn't fear if they're in, a, in the midst of a storm. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with that kind of surface connection particularly as he asks his disciples to remember the number yes right yeah it's always encouraging when we read in scripture <laughs> that we're supposed to be paying attention to particular numbers and realizing yeah. their significance and people complain that we pay too much attention yeah. to numbers but christ is obviously rebuking us for not paying enough attention because we're not getting it yes, on this right, particular thing right. and you're kind of left in mark you're kind of left in the in the position of the uh, disciples jesus says do you not understand <laughs> And just that question keeps lingering, and you're, you, you as the reader say, well, n no, Jesus, I don't. Can you please explain further? So, no, I don't have any uh, other than that very superficial connection. 
I, I want to point to a couple of things in the, back into the John account. Um, I think we have some, uh, we talked about the Exodus themes. We have some clear references also to a kind of uh, uh, creation setting. Uh, it becomes dark, verse 17 says. The sea is stirred because of a wind and a blowing. And then Jesus emerges from that. So you again, kind of a Genesis 1-2 connection with uh, the darkness on the face of the deep. The spirit, the wind of God is blowing across. Jesus is, in a sense, in that position of that wind of God that's going to bring. So he's, he's on the surface of the waters. Uh, and walking on the surface of the waters, he's going to bring order out of that chaos. And in the midst of that, um, uh, I think maybe a creation reference, among other things, is the way that he identifies himself. When his disciples first see him, they're frightened by him, but then he calls out and assures them with an I am. It's it is I as the the way that it uh, reads in my translation, but it's an it's ego eimi in the Greek, which is I am, one of many I am statements in John. Usually, there's an object attached to it. Jesus, I, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, and so on. This is just the straight I am, which is a form of the the name of Yahweh, the name of God, the God of Israel. So he's identifying himself in the midst of the darkness. You all, all they they see a form. They don't know who he is. It's implied that they don't know who he is. They hear a voice out of the darkness, uh, and uh, then everything is calm once he gets into the when he, once he gets into the boat. So there's a hint over within the Exodus uh, typology. There's a hint of a new creation typology too. That Jesus is the one who brings order out of the out of the chaos and and churning of the of the nations. Those elements of darkness and wind are also found course in the story of the um, red sea crossing where there's a strong east wind that blows all night and then they cross at that time and then as the dawn comes the waters um cover the egyptians yeah verse 21 has a is i think it's phrased interestingly jesus identifies himself i am do not be afraid and it says they were willing therefore to receive him into the boat it's not that they received him into the boat but there's a it's a, a kind of uh pointing to the the decision that the disciples make to bring Jesus into the boat. I think in the context of John, this would be analogous to the call to believe, uh, the analogous to the, the various statements in John about uh, seeing that's connected with believing. But there's a decision to bring Jesus into the boat. As long as the boat is without, as long as Jesus is not in the boat, then they're, they're straining at the oars and not able to make progress once Jesus is in the boat, they're immediately at the dry land. But there has to be this kind of decision made to, to bring Jesus into the boat and to receive him there. As many as received him, to them he uh, gave them power to become sons of God. Is the, That's the language that we have early on in the, in the gospel. And you have uh, some echo of that language here in, uh, in this scene. How do you believe that this counts as one of the signs of John? Some have disputed that this is one of the signs at all, um, suggesting that we should see the resurrection as the seventh sign and exclude this one, or some have even seen the final chapter as another sign. What is it that makes this a sign within John's theology? Well, I think the, the kinds of things we've been talking about would uh, support that. I, don't, I think it's hard to be dogmatic about what John intended as signs in his gospel, because he doesn't identify all these things as signs. We know that Jesus is doing various signs that aren't identified as signs. 
uh, verse 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Uh, so Jesus has done signs other than the two that are identified as signs. That may be a reference back to the feeding of the 5,000. What they ha- what people are responding to is the food and not to the what what's being communicated about Jesus. Um, so uh, in any case, we know, Je- we know Jesus does lots of signs, but John doesn't identify them all. So and I would be I would be hesitant to be really dogmatic about enumerating them. I think this fits though because of the way that it um, it's doing some of the same things that the other signs are doing. The first sign that is identified as such is the transformation of the water to wine. It's the water purification for the Jews that's turned into the wine of a wedding feast. That's not just a demonstration of power but it's a demonstration of power that signifies something that, about Jesus and what he's come to achieve. We talked about uh, the, the man, the, the paralyzed man, who has been 38 years in his sickness and then is, is healed. And that links up with, again, with the history of Israel being 38 years in the wilderness and then brought in, being brought into the, to the land. The Passover scene at the beginning of chapter 6 is, again, you have this old, new dynamic. And I think the same thing... The same thing is going on here with the, with the crossing of the sea. You have this old new dynamic. He's the God of the Exodus. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the waters. Who, uh, you, know, you could say that the, uh, the, these two events, the feeding and the, the sea crossing, go together because they're a Passover Exodus sequence and therefore constitute one sign. That would be okay, I think. That <laughs> would be one way to read it. But I think it, it is part, it is a, it's a miraculous event that signifies not only Jesus' power, that he is the Word of God made flesh, but also signifies something about the kingdom that he's brought. So I think those things, elements, uh, suggest to me that this counts as a sign, even if we don't count it as a sign separate from the feeding. It seems to have all the, all the elements of those other signs that we've been looking at. Do you think John is pointing this forward to the resurrection that Christ um, coming after the dark um, his disciples being afraid. It seems very yeah, much to me yeah. that that's the point in Mark, but um, it's less pronounced in John. Uh, the other thing we see in some of the other Gospels, um, the description of the calming of the sea has a character that's reminiscent of an exorcism. Mm-hmm. Christ is cast almost um, rebuking these forces, casting out particular things that are um, at work within the creation, not necessarily saying that these forces are demonic forces, mm-hmm. but they at least symbol symbolize them in some respect. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe think about the power of the spirit of the air that's in at work in the world, in the story of John particularly, that that storm is associated with the hour mm-hmm. of um, the prince of this world. Yeah, it's interesting here that Jesus does not speak to rebuke the waves. You don't have that exorcism language. It has the same effect because once he's in the boat, then everything is everything is calm and they reach their destination. It's a realized eschatology there. That as, long, as long as Jesus is there, then uh, they've already reached. He is the way and he's the destination who has become the way. So they're, they're already at the place that they're, place that they're aiming for. They're already there when he, uh, when he comes in. But there's no, there's no, uh, there's no kind of exorcism speech like there is in the in the synoptics which is interesting 
Any Never. thoughts finally on the um, description of what follows the crowd that follow in their small boats? That's really integral to the whole thing because then Jesus withdraws. You have this complex series of movements. Jesus feeds the 5,000 people proclaim him as the prophet, and he withdraws in order to prevent them from making him king. With Jesus, once Jesus is withdrawn, then you have the disciples set out in the boat by themselves. Jesus joins them in the boat, and then all of the people on the other side, uh, where Jesus started out, wonder what happened to him. They know he didn't get into the boat with his disciples, but somehow he's not there, and they find out he's on the other side. So they set out. So you have the, this complex series of movements, and then the the, uh, the discourse, the debate that follows is really picking up on the picking up on verse fifteen, uh, where they intend to make him king, and he withdraws, and then he rebukes them for seeking him, not because they saw the signs, but because they want loaves, and they are, they're seeking the food that perishes rather than the manna that Jesus Himself is. So the scene of the water crossing is set within this. Jesus attempt to escape from the crowds, at least the crowds that are trying to make him king. So at least that you have structurally that that's the that's the way that the scene is kind of nestled within that within that setting. I don't you have this you have this inter, this scene of a kind of a flotilla of a small boats going across that uh, trying to catch up with Jesus. That's an interesting and arresting scene, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Of course, we shouldn't detach these events, the feeding of the 5,000, the crossing of the sea. In these other events that we've been looking at, Jesus does something miraculous, and then there's this, a lengthy debate about it. And that's what's happening here in chapter 6. We haven't looked at it much, but a lot of the chapter, most of the chapter is taken up with this debate about the bread of life and Jesus identifying himself as the bread of life. So you have this, and, and that causes division. It causes division even among Jesus' disciples in this case. It's not just that Jesus is divided against the Jews, but there's a, there's a division within the disciples, uh, within the company of disciples, that, uh, because of what Jesus says in this passage. So uh, you have this combination of event and word uh, that goes on all the way through this section of John's Gospel. And the, the event uh, functions as the sign of, that provokes a debate, and that debate always is a, is a cause of division. The signs are not just, the signs are signs that uh, communicate God's intentions and Jesus' character and his work, but the signs are also stumbling blocks for the Jews. They're stumbling blocks for many disciples in this case, and they're causes for division that, uh, uh, and that's, that's escalating through the first half of the gospel. The Jews are getting more intense in their opposition to Jesus. The divisions are getting deeper, and that's going to be, come to a culmination in the, the seventh sign, as, at least as we're enumerating them, uh, which is uh, the raising of Lazarus when the Jews decide that they have to, they have to kill Jesus, and, and they have to kill Lazarus because they can't have, they don't want Jesus around, and as long as Lazarus is walking around, then uh, he's going to be a, a living testimony to the power of Jesus to raise the dead. They can't have that, and so things come to a climax after the last of these signs. Now, the signs have that double effect. The signs are always signs that, uh, for those who receive them and believe, uh, they're signs that point to Jesus and his, the eternal life that he gives. But they're also causes of stumbling for those who uh, resist him and refuse to, hear, refuse to receive him. Perhaps we could also think about the structure of the signs of John 
this would be in our new um in the way we've been numbering them this would be the fifth sign which would correspond very well with the days of creation at this point and um, the creation of the sea creatures and also if we think about them as um having a panel structure as we've commented before um this would go alongside the raising of the uh, the son of the royal or the healing of the son of the royal official mm-hmm. um both accounts that are associated with Capernaum um that are associated with power exercised from particular distance other things like that which i'm not sure how to connect those two the other ones connect a bit more clearly yeah i mean we may have uh, the one of the connections may simply be the uh they both have overtones of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles, more overtly in the second sign with the royal official's son, but then in this case with all the symbolism of the sea and the Sea of Galilee uh, and uh, the, those, those associations that suggest a Gentile, an interest in the Gentiles. Well, it's interesting. It doesn't, John doesn't refer to it as the Sea of Galilee. It's mm. the Sea of Tiberias yeah, right. in John. right. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.